Welcome to the Flower Hour Podcast, the podcast where conversations blossom. It is your boy, Sean Flores. If you love this podcast and you've really enjoyed it, please share, subscribe and follow and look forward to the journey we will be going on. Hello, hello. Welcome to everybody. You are here, locked into Flower Hour, episode 9. Still can't believe we've made it here. Today I am going live with Atian. We're going to be talking about black politics. We're going to be talking about politics in general and so much more. So I'm just looking forward to having this conversation. Let's get it. See if it's working. Hi, yes, how are you? How are good. you, man? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's all right, man. How's um, how, how's the day been? It's been very long. There's been a lot of meetings because I think we're really at a time where people are having some conversations, which I'm really interested in being involved in. And there's a lot of action. I think this the multitude of crises we're living through, the coronavirus pandemic the Black Lives Matter movement, I think it's presenting an opportunity to implement change like we rarely ever have. And I yeah. think it's an interesting Cause, time. Because I saw recently, um, just today, you put up the post that you did with Huffington Post, right? Yeah. Like, you've written for so many publications. I've seen The Independent, Times, The Guardian, Huffington Post. I'm trying to be like you. and I'm Thank to be you. Like you. Nah, like I'm I, trying to be like you. You know what it is? I was going to say I'm trying to be like you when I grow up, but you're only 17. That's crazy. Yeah. Thank you, I That's really crazy, appreciate that. Man. Thank you, I appreciate that. I think... Listen, do you know what it is? Before we get into it, because we're already getting deep in, yeah. I want you just to introduce yourself to my audience and so everyone knows who you are, most importantly. Yeah, so my name is Atian. I'm 17. I'm from Camden. Um, I'm an activist. And so I try and talk about the things which I think affect my community. So things like systemic racism, knife crime, and in the future, things like climate change. And I think it's about reach I, I want to be a voice for the people around me and try and move into the spaces where other people don't feel they can operate in for various different reasons and i think it's about trying to really highlight the issues which are untalked about which are undiscussed which are brushed over and looked past by those who who hold power in our country wow so what so the first question i've got to ask you is how did you reach the place that you are now because I said before in one of my lives, I learned everything that I learned when I was in my second year of university. And before that, I wasn't really exposed to black activism, black issues, quote unquote. I was just kind of rolling through life and just enjoying life for what it is. But you're 17 and you've reached that place already. You've already you. taken on the burden that is racism, fighting issues such as climate change. How did you reach that place? I think it's... A lot of it is like stumbling across things and, and thinking quite a lot about... So the way that I frame it is I think a lot of the work that I do is informed by witnessing things that I see around me in my community, in the place where I live, and also connecting that to some of the things which I've been lucky enough to be engaged and educated about. Because I always say the personal is political and the political is personal. Absolutely. So everything we see in our neighbourhood in where we are that's happening to our communities is informed by politics. And I think if you want to understand that and change that, you have to educate yourself about that and try and learn and investigate. And I think that's a lot of it. That's, I think that connection is, is, informs a lot of what I do. Okay. So, but for many people, you know, a lot of people I know, a lot of people that I don't know are probably going to be saying, Atian, enjoy your life. You're young, man. Why do you need to take on these stresses and these burdens for? What is your response to people that will tell you that? I think, I think the response to that is, I think, generally it's like trying to find something that's engaging. Because I do a lot of other stuff that's not related to activism. But I think it's something that really engages me. And I think different stuff engages different people. But I think this is something which I think really connects with. And I think it also allows me to use a lot of the skills that I've developed and have in a way that's, not just useful for me, but perhaps useful for, for other people. I'm and not sure if that did, answer the question. And when did your journey with activism start? Was there a moment where you said to yourself, I can no longer 
sit blindly? Was there a moment where, you know, you took the red pill? You no longer wanted to take the blue pill. Was it? Was there a red pill moment? I think it wasn't one specific moment, but I think it's really quite a generational thing. I think it's it's one of the things I talk about in this half post article that sort of people my age have grown up in an age of perpetual crisis. So the 2008 financial crisis, the climate crisis, the, the, the crisis of systemic racism, this has opened our eyes to different forms of injustice in a way that other generations didn't see. Injustice was something which was far away and hidden and really quite isolated. Whereas for people our age and in the age of social media, it's something that's, that's constantly around and it's something you see constantly. And so a lot of the sort of work I've done over the last two years is so I ran um, to be a member of the youth parliament in Camden and so I won that. Then a lot of doors started to open around things that I could engage with. And I think that was, that was what happened. I think these kind of issues around social justice, environmentalism, anti-racism, I think they, they, they're things that have always interested me and I've always been engaged with. But this almost role that I've had has, has opened the doors to really take that further and to, to act upon these things. Okay, because I went to, um, so I'm from Southwest London, literally the other side. I yeah. went to Merton Youth Parliament. I did Wandsworth Youth Council as well. And I enjoyed it. But at the time, if I was to be honest with you, I did it because my mum told me it would look good on my CV. I, I think I cared, but I don't think I was at an emotional capacity to be able to care in depth, perhaps. Yeah at the age that you care and at the depth you care. But now, obviously, I care deeply due to my emotional maturity and the things that have happened. So just how important has youth parliament been to becoming the young man that you are now? Um, I think it's opened the doors, but there's also been a lot of resistance to some of the stuff I've done. I think sometimes, like one example, which I think is quite powerful. So a couple of years back, Theresa May, when she was still prime minister, it seems like a lifetime ago, um, <laughs> held, I mean, this state and, and the way that things are moving so quickly. So she held um, a knife crime summit where she invited different community leaders, different people who were involved in this issue in various different capacities. And so after that, I wrote an article for The Independent saying how it was pointless unless the government changed their policy of austerity. Like, there have been several times where the, the organisations like the youth parliament has basically, they've basically gotten really annoyed at stuff that I've done. But I think it's not, it's not my job or the way that I frame it mentally is just not my job to, to please these people and for them to approve of everything I do. My job is to try and help out in the, in the various different causes. And I think actually as an organization, I think a lot of the stuff that happens is really disengaging because there's a lot of talk about people being apolitical and you're not allowed to comment on politics. And I actually think everything that happens in this world is inherently pol political. Absolutely. And if you want to change anything, you have to speak in a, in a political way. Why do you believe some people perhaps are so nihilistic and pessimistic about politics at this current conjuncture where we see the wealth gap between poor and rich getting bigger? We see systemic racism in some parts has become even bigger as well. And identity politics has thrown the world into a disarray. And also, it's been a blessing and a, um, blessing and a disadvantage in some ways, I could argue. But why do you think some people are just so apolitical when everything is absolutely inherently political? I think it's because of the failures of our political structures to translate people's um, care about these various different issues into, actual, into real tangible action. I think it's... Our, our, the way that our voting system works, the way that our political system works is, is to preserve the status quo. It's to make people apathetic. Because, I mean, all the wrong structures in society, whether that be around us heading towards a climate crisis because our economy is emitting loads of carbon, whether that be systemic racism, whether that be the massive income inequality that, that comes all across the country, or whether it be the... Um, that comment's funny. Whether yeah, it be... One of my boys went to uni, he's always trolling me. Okay, yeah, cool, I'm pretty <laughs> Yeah, I think if we look at these various different things, those who hold power and want to preserve the status quo are interested and have a vested interest in no one being engaged in ordinary people across the country who don't go to the best universities in the, in the country, who don't go to the best private schools, actually getting involved 
because if more of us from working class backgrounds, from backgrounds all across the country, from diverse backgrounds, so from if more black people were involved in politics, we'd see a shake up in the way that society works and society functions. We have people who want to tackle injustice head on because they've seen it happen to their community. But no, they put up barriers, they use complicated language, they um, purposely alienate people, all in the aim of creating a barrier between those who want real change in society and the positions of power where this real change can be achieved. But then that, that leads me on to have to ask you, what does real change look like to someone like yourself? How do you see that change also being implemented in the rate that where we are currently in society? So if we look at the idea which has led us to many of these crises, at least in the last 40 years, it's this idea called neoliberalism. And it's basically where you believe that the market, the free market capitalism, is the best way to run every single part of society. So you basically believe that we shouldn't have state intervention, we shouldn't have a welfare state. And I think in the last decade after the financial crisis, we've seen that implemented all across the world. And actually what we need is to do two things, is to, um, I'll answer that question in a second. Um, I think we need to have a government that intervenes when there's an injustice, that tackles the problems when, when they're there. Because I mean, governments have power to do this. But on the question of abolition and reform, I think it's a matter of stages. I think it's hard to, in our current society, flip the structures in almost an instant, but we can eventually reach a point where we have different forms of abolition. But I think it's about stages. And I think all the people that I've read, so people like Angela Davis, all these different people, talk about or at least allude to different stages of abolition and reform and i think it's about understanding that a small step well i'm not in, into sort of small steps I, I don't believe i think the centrism so i think people like obama are, are good examples to look at obama was a person who understood how to win power how to make speeches how to do politics but ideologically he was flawed Absolutely. didn't so what he did is, after the 2008 financial crisis, he hired loads of people from Wall Street. He hired the same people who led them into this crisis to lead them out. Mm. So I think at the present crisis we're in, we have to find a way out and economic recovery and change our criminal justice system by not using the same ideas that got us in there. I think we have a problem in, in politics that people basically recycle the same ideas, even if they don't work. And we're starting to see that now in terms of the way that countries are looking to solve the, the various different problems they're having as a result of the economic downturn from the coronavirus pandemic. But do you simply believe that the recycling of those ideas, the recycling of individuals is because there's a conveyor belt that typically walks into parliament? We don't have people that come from very real set and parts of the world who live a struggle, typically the working class, typically ethnic minorities who make up the bread bone and the bre make up the backbone of the society. So yeah. how do we challenge that conveyor belt of individuals who come in with the very same ideologies that put the country in that very same crisis? I think we need to change our understanding of politics. Our politics or political transformation and change doesn't happen from great individuals emerging and coming and giving brilliant speeches and convincing everyone that we should do things X, Y, or Z. It comes from organization, it comes from movements. And these movements create people who then go into these positions of power who transform things. I think a good example of that is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in, in the US, who's a really progressive, um, brilliant senator or congresswoman. But she alone cannot achieve any of the things which she plans for. So things like a Green New Deal, things like tackling systemic racism. It's actually rather about individuals reflecting the politics or the radical politics of entire movements. And I think that's the direction of the left. And I think someone like Jeremy Corbyn is, a, is an example which is worth looking at. What got him close to power in 2017 wasn't the usual things that happened in politics. It was the mobilization of, of a new generation of people who previously had no representation of their politics in the mainstream. 
And I think it's about doing that, but on a wider scale. So what's happening? So I think how I perceive my role in politics over the coming decade would be to help bridge the gap between the radical movements which are unfolding across the country. So around things like systemic racism, around Black Lives Matter, around climate change, and, and transferring those ideas into being applied in, in the places of power. Do you not believe that Corbyn was one of the best examples, as you said, of people... He was a manifestation of politics that have been around for a long time, but nobody was able to mobilise them. So we know Corbyn was loved and hated by some people, but his ideas were seemingly radical to some people who do not understand that there is a way outside of the status quo. Now, there's going to be people that I know that will argue that capitalism is the only way forward simply because it's brought so many people out of poverty. It's created so many ideas. The free market allows for competition. So there's a freer way in which that we can move. When you look at Corbyn, he challenged all of those ideas. He was too radical for some people. So how can we make a socialist idea more tangible for people who aren't ready to perhaps listen or see the world in a different way? So I think in 2017, and this is one idea that I've been thinking about a lot recently, is that Jeremy Corbyn very powerfully made the moral case for socialism. He talked a lot about justice and equality, which are all very good and I totally believe in. But I think that appeals to certain people. But you also have to make the really practical case for socialism. That actually equality of living, uh, extending the funding for the NHS, building a secure welfare state, properly funding schools, tackling the various different forms of injustice we have. That's not just morally good, but it's actually, it creates a society where it's just materially better to live in. And I think it's about politics is, or good politics, is about very carefully speaking both the moral politics, but also practical politics. Absolutely. As in, yeah, I think that's one lesson that we can really learn from, from the Corbyn years, that he, he spoke very powerfully about the moral case for socialism, but he didn't do enough to talk about practicalities. Okay, and I think that's an absolutely valid point. I think... Politics nowadays appeases to um, our hearts and our minds more than it does to the rational, logical and pragmatic sides. And I think it's so refreshing to hear someone say you need to also have that logical side, essentially, to appeal to other systems where people can tangibly see a way out. So I want to ask you, on the topic of identity politics, Whilst identity politics has freed some people and allowed them to create an identity under which they understand, it's also created a wedge in the world. Is there a way that we can bridge the gap between differing identities when at the same time hierarchies have been created as a result of identity politics? I think identity politics is something which, I think as you say, there are some uses to it and there are some drawbacks. But I think it's about, we need to more consciously, so there's, there's an idea that I've come across recently. So you have, you have something called the community of strength and you have a community of vulnerability. So a community of strength is centered around things like nationality, around some kind of ability that you collectively have around wealth or power um, in its various different forms. And a community of vulnerability is about forming communities around shared threats that we have. Mm. So an institution like the NHS, which is, I think, probably this country's greatest institution. Absolutely. Yeah, I think everyone can agree on that. Is uh, something that's, response, that's a response to the logic of a community of vulnerability. It's about, this is a threat that we all collectively face. How can we collectively tackle it? So if we apply that logic to various different parts of the world, in the way that we don't currently do, I think we could, we could really see progress in society. We all, at some point, need to be educated. That's a vulnerability. The problems of not being educated, that's a, that's a vulnerability. We all are going to be affected by the climate crisis or are being affected by the climate crisis. So let's, as a part of a community of vulnerability, tackle that. We're all going to have... We all fundamentally, I think, most of us in the world have similar vulnerabilities material vulnerabilities and so organizing and structuring society in a way that bridges those divides 
in the hope of creating a, a strong safety net across society is really where I think progressive politics is going. And I um, hope it goes. It, do you know what it is? I agree with you. And I think to unite under our differences and to unite against our common threat is a wonderful sentiment. But sometimes it's not always realistic. And I think that's best epitomized currently today in black politics. When we think about black politics, we think of the idea that we're all black, we all need empowerment, we all need emancipation, we all need liberation. However, there's one side of black politics who screams, I want the nuclear family. Then there's another side of black politics who doesn't want trans inclusion. Then there's another side of black politics who believes that conservatives are sellouts. How can we come to a uniformity when our differences are playing out in such a rapid rate? I think you can't, I think it's a difficult balance. I think there are people who believe certain things that can't be included in any kind of politics we do. People who deny the rights of certain groups of black people have no place in, in, in this movement. But it's about, and I think those people have no place, but it's about educating people, I think. Because I think we all have to operate in a sense that there are things we don't know, that there are issues which we're not aware of. So if I educate someone on a certain issue, which I think is really important, and they then decide to not adapt and change and, and accept that, then I think they have no place. But I think we should really do a job as a movement. I think there are people who are doing this to try and open people's awareness to the, def to the different, um, these different issues. Because I think the struggle for black um, equality and black rights is not a singular struggle. Absolutely. It, it's, it encompasses things like education, healthcare, the economy, well, the climate crisis. It's very much multi-layered, right? Yeah. And multi-approach, like, uh, multi-dimensional. So why is it sometimes as a movement, perhaps, we're so stuck on such a singular thought pattern? I think... There's a lot of, I think we need to embrace the idea of debating different ideas of how we can move forward. Because I think there are things which we can take from all different kinds of ideology which, ideologies which have been inherited from, from the, those who fought for our rights before us. So I think there's much to be learned from Pan-Africanism. There's a lot to be learned from Black Socialists. There's a, there's a lot to be learned from every tradition of Black politics. And I think you have to incorporate elements of each one to, to find a way forward. But I think this isn't something that I think one person can collectively come to a conclusion on. I think it's, it's a really mass conversation that, that needs to be facilitated, that needs to be happened, that needs to happen for us to, to move forward. And with everything that's happening in the world, with Black Lives Matter, with the unfortunate death of George Floyd, how do you feel about the contemporary politics and and just being a black young man at the moment, how do you feel? I think there's part of me which really embraces what's happening with with almost the, the, the rising awareness of these different issues. But then there's also part of me which is a bit suspicious to why was, why was everyone who seems to be switched on now really not looking before? Because all these injustices all these different issues around police brutality, around state violence, have been going on for decades and decades and decades. And it's, I think part of me is a bit suspicious about how genuine are people who only realised this was a problem in, in, in the last couple of months. I mean, you had Eric Garner, Philando Castile, you had all these different cases of people who'd been killed by the American police and even here in Britain. And still people turned a blind eye and, and walked on. And I think there, there needs to be more of a reflection amongst those who've recently joined the movement or joined the cause, particularly those, I mean, mainly non-black people, about why they didn't pay attention to these injustices before. Why did it require a man to, 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 to have some, for someone to put uh, their neck on someone for nine minutes for you to realise that systemic racism was a problem? Why did it require that? for you to realise that, that, that we have these various different issues to solve. Mm. Um, just quickly, so everyone knows what we're chatting about, we're just talking about politics, black politics, um, talking about how 
Blackness is not just a singular movement. We should make it multidimensional, multi-layered, and multi-approach. And if you have any questions for myself or Atian, throw it in the question box, because this has been one of the best conversations I've had Thank so you. far. Absolutely. So this leads me on to ask you another question. And I think this is a very genuine question. It's a question I've wanted to ask somebody. I've looked and I've done my research, and I've seen that other people who are not black but white have also died at the hands of the police in a very, in a way, very similar to, unfortunately, um, George Floyd. But the media does not cover it. I also know as a journalist that the news only covers things that are newsworthy. And I feel like the news plays on black and black people's emotions. They know that when we see the death of a black body, first of all, it's traumatic. Second of all, they know of how many times it's happened. Do you believe that the media is playing into black fear? Or do you believe it's also mobilizing a movement that will last, a that will become a legacy? Look, I think, um, I think the way that these graphic videos of black people being killed have become so normally normalized and trivialized and, and played 24-7 constantly on both social media and on our TV screens is something which is quite problematic. But there's also a question of police brutality and state violence and all the other issues which affect black people are fundamentally rooted in broken systems. So if you look at Britain, 3% of the British population is black, but 12% of the prison, are the prison population is black. And we have the highest prison rate in the whole of Western Europe. Yeah, it's something people don't talk about. such a developed nation. Doesn't that tell us everything? When you think about countries like Sweden, they're closing down prisons, yeah. which says a lot about how they see things. We should have a reformative and a restorative justice rather than having a system that seeks to, pun um, to punish people. But sorry, I yeah. have to say that. Yeah, no problem. I think part of the reason why we have such a big prison population is I think there are several reasons. One of them is that we're such an economically unequal society. I mean nine of the poorest areas in, in, in Western Europe are in Britain. And we also have the richest places in, in Europe. And we also have really punitive policing. We have things like stop and search. But on the issue of, of the 3% British population and 12% prison population, is systemic racism worsens already broken institutions and systems. So in Britain, the general way that politicians think about imprisonment is let's save money at the earliest possible point. So things like intervention, things like a strong welfare state, education, training programs, employment, all these different things, they basically decide, oh, that's not, that's not important. But what they do is they really value imprisonment and policing and all these other different things. I think these problems impact wider society, but it's about systemic racism aggravating these issues and so as people who want to create a society where black lives matter we have to both address the systemic racism but also these root cause injustices it's about both and i don't think you can do one or the other we all have a vest we all live in this society our education system the criminal justice system the economy all the way that these things work we also have to do work to transform and change. And that's a very interesting point because typically when we think about um, the school-to-prison pipeline, we think about the US. However, people don't realise that the UK has a school-to-prison pipeline. And once upon a time ago, I can't remember which politician said it. They said that if you exclude a kid, you might as well send them to prison. Yeah. And someone goes to prison. What happens when they go to prison? There's a label that's thrown on them which probably plays into more of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now there's stories, there's transformation, transformational stories of young men and young women who have come out from prison and done well for themselves. But we want to be able to avoid even having to go to prison. We want to yeah. avoid having contact with the criminal justice system. Atian, how do we avoid having contact with the criminal justice system in the very first place? I think what we do is we change the way that we perceive crime in society. So if you take a socio sociological perspective on crime, you realise that nearly all the root causes of, any, of most crime is about a lack of opportunity, is about inequality, is about poverty, is about school exclusion. 
all of which are social problems which we can very easily, with enough government money and effort and political will, tackle. So we need to change the way we think about public spending. So politicians, and particularly conservatives, talk a lot about we don't have enough money to do this, it's too much public spending. But actually to the wider public who aren't influenced about these, who aren't affected by these issues, and who frankly aren't, aren't that sympathetic to people who they perceive as being bad for committing crime, the way that we shift this language is talking about um, subsidising people's success. So why wouldn't we subsidise creating opportunity, creating social um, systems of, of safety nets? Why wouldn't we subsidise allowing people to be productive and make something of their life? But rather than just pushing people into poverty and um, creating a massive prison population. But also, I think we have to try and think about the general possibility that people in wider society aren't going to act upon this. And that's why there are brilliant community groups who are doing a lot about um, mentorship, about providing materially. All these different things are really important in, in the, until we can change the way that people think about these issues. Okay. Um, ideally, I said to everyone, throw the questions in the question box, but I'm going to ask this question to Atian. What's your view on support towards BAME offenders regarding prison release and higher chances of reoffending due to no supports. I think obviously systemic racism is at play um, in terms of reoffending, because I think if you look at reoffending, the root cause of it is that we have a system which basically punishes people perpetually, even after they've served their prison sentence, and so that's basically about changing the way we think about this but also just practically providing people with skills and education and creating a good benefit system. And I think once we do all these things, that, then we can tackle the really high rate of reoffending that we have. Um, Six Cads Limitless made a good point. He said, I feel like something needs to be done with probation to va facilitate valuable learning, not just for low-skilled work. That's a very valid point. I think that's true. Incredibly yeah. valid point. Thank you for that. Atian, mm. I've got to ask you another question. I could ask you questions all day. What do you, how do you believe um, the black community could repair its relationship with the police? Or is it the police's responsibility to repair their um, relationship with the black community? I think it's any kind of structure or system in society which has for decades and across generations traumatized people and took taken people's lives i th i think it's difficult for anyone to argue and i don't think it would be right to argue that we as a community need to take the first step i think the police need need to do this and i think we generally need to have a reconsideration of what policing is for and whether or not it should continue in its current form mm. Because I think a lot of what we have is about suppression and enforcement and, and things like stop and search. I mean, stop and search is genuinely the most ridiculous policy when you actually look at it. So a lot of these politicians who support it like to talk about how we're stopping knife crime, we're reducing the danger on the streets. But actually, when you look at it, it's just alienating loads of people and it's just statistically ineffective. It's basically there to put loads of people in prison for low-level drug offences. Like, who in society actually gains from that? No one. It's just a system to carry on the same form of oppressive policing which we have. That's a very interesting point, Atian, because um, not many people know, but I used to be a police officer, and um, I quit after my first shift, and it was simply because I felt like there's no way that I can make a change. I'm simply perpetuating the same laws, the same ideologies um, that, I was, that I grew up with in some sense. In some sense, I just knew I couldn't create a change. I have friends now currently in the police force and I'd love to get them on a live, but they're not willing to talk simply because they know the backlash that's going to come as a result of it. So I've seen some comments and it's on the question of diversity. Do you believe having more black people within the police force to challenge institutional racism could work to help repair the black the relationship with the police and the black community i think 
answering that question requires an analysis of where the the police sits in our social and economic systems. So, I don't think having more black black police officers is would would fix the problem. And anyone is welcome to argue against that. But I think it's just the way that the police are structured as an institution basically leads to systemic racism. And even if you have black people who are in these roles, it's just the inherent current setup of policing that means that, that even if you have black people who are doing that job, we'd still have the same fundamental problems about disproportionate stop and search around mass incarceration. And I think we need to de-individualise politics we need to less talk about people and individuals and more about systems and institutions. And I think that's a way forward. So why do you believe there's such a focus on the individual as opposed to a focus on the systems that really and truly rain down on that individual who therefore then implements the um, belief systems? I think... Um it's really easy to do individualised politics. If I say there's a problem with the institution or, or system or the way that something works, if you subscribe to individualist politics, someone can just say, oh, why don't we just replace this person? But when you talk about systems and institutions, it's much more complicated. It requires real substantive change to address institutional problems. And you can't just blame it on an individual when actually you are arguing through the use of institutional language that this is the inherent problem of the way that something is set up. And we generally, in everything we talk about, need to talk less about individuals and more about the way that systems work. I think a lot of people agree that it's easier to blame individuals. Individuals are harder to be held accountable. They don't want to fix their issues. I think a lot of people are in alignment with that viewpoint. And I want to ask you, so when we currently look at um, the current Prime Minister that we have, Boris Johnson, what are your thoughts around Boris Johnson, for example, refusing to take a knee because he doesn't do gestures? I mean, that's obviously nonsense. I mean, he's been going outside his door and and clapping every Thursday as a sort of gesture towards the the brilliant work the NHS are doing during this pandemic. But I think more, we need to look beyond him not doing that. We need to look at what his government's doing, what those who pay for his party are doing, and how they're maintaining the system of, of, of racism we have in this country. Mm. So, interestingly, when we looked at what the Black Lives Matter movement has done so far, they pulled down statues. You know, you had um, Robert Milligan, Mulligan, I believe, Milligan or Mulligan, was pulled down. You had Edward Colston was pulled down. What are your views and how do you feel with statues being pulled down? And is it a valid removal of white supremacy, right, white supremacist um, figures within history? Look, I don't think the removal of statues is, is, is unimportant or meaningless. But I think it can't be, it can't be confused for a real substantive change. Because even if we pull down all the statues of, of racists and enslavers, which I think we should, we still have to do the work to dismantle racism in, in the education system, in the criminal justice system. And actually, these, sometimes these symbols, like I think in Washington, they, they painted part of the street to say Black Lives Matter. They shouldn't be confused for the real difficult work around changing the way the economy works, around systemic institutional change. So I don't think it's meaningless, but it shouldn't be confused for real substantive institutional change. So for example, I'm, um, I identify as a Pan-African. I believe for the community, we must do for ourselves before we ask anybody else to do it for us. Now, when we think about the education system, and someone's just said it all starts in the education system, so great minds think alike. When we think about um, the supplementary schools, supplementary schools played such a huge part to the black community and they helped bridge the gap where black kids were being left behind in the education system. Now, supplementary schools are no longer as popular, but there are still so many. And with black history being asked and being petitioned to be put into the national curriculum, we have the power. I think it's the Black British Pound um, 
holds a value of 300 million, if I'm correct, in the UK, we could create our own institutions. We could open up more Pan-African schools. But why do you think there's such a desire to put it in at a national education system? I think about this on, I think, two levels. So I think there needs to be more of an awareness in general society about black history. Yeah. And I think that's the reason for putting it in the, in the curriculum. But still, I think there needs to be work done within the community to educate people about their own history, about their past, about the elements which have been hidden from them. And I think, so a really powerful example is, I think one of the leading almost intellectuals and, and people who everyone listens to in black British person is a color who he actually went to school in Camden and he grew he up went in to Camden. a Pan-African school in Camden. Yeah. yeah, his, yeah book, up... his book is amazing. I've listened yeah, it's to brilliant. a color for years. Yeah. He's an example of, I think he's a powerful example of the kind of greatness that can be produced by these institutions. And so in the years where they no longer exist, we have to think about how many people like him have we lost out? How many people have not been exposed to this kind of thing? And I think, there needs to be a more general awareness about black history in our teaching and, and education system. But there also needs to be work that's done within the community to, to bring history to people. So to be a devil's advocate, you have people such as Morgan Freeman who says, I don't want a black history. White people don't have history. Why do you believe we have people such as Morgan Freeman who hold no interest in having black history? And why, Atian? Why is black history the world's history? I think the, the question about Morgan Freeman, I think sometimes we have to... I mean, he's a great actor, but I'm not sure whether or not we should be listening to him about his views on black history. I think that's just my answer to that. But, but I think the, the question about world history is really quite interesting. So I've been reading a lot recently about the Haitian Revolution and its interaction with the French Revolution. Yes. So I think the French Revolution is very often talked about as being the singular most important revolution in history. It birthed ideas about liberty and freedom and equality. But actually, people fail to look at how it interacted with the Haitian Revolution. Because the Haitian Revolution started to ask questions about who do these ideas of liberty and freedom apply to? Who, at what line do we stop? Because these slaves in Haiti who'd managed to success, successfully hold the only ever slave revolution in history, if they're capable of doing that, that really undermines all the ideas of social Darwinism and black people supposedly not being intelligent. And so it really highlighted a lot of the logical inconsistencies in the French Revolution. And so the Haitian Revolution is something which is massively important, but it's often overlooked and, and, and not discussed in mainstream historical study. And I think it also just for black people it really challenges the ideas that, that are commonly put forward about how slavery ended. It didn't happen because of the benevolence of anyone in England. Absolutely. It, it happened not. because, it it happened no because they made financially. it financially. Yeah, 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 literally. They Everyone made it financially impossible. Everyone knows in the UK, the equivalent of 20 billion was paid out to people who owned slaves. Imagine the people who were slaves were not paid. That tells you a lot about how unjust and how immoral, unethical, the British society is. Atian, we got, so we got some questions for you. Oh, whoops, I think I pressed the wrong button. Oh, here we go. We've got some questions for you. Um, let's go for this one. Oh, Beyonce and her recent work. Look, I think, I think the accumulation of massive amounts of wealth amongst a small number of black people is not going to help anyone do I, I, I don't know too much about this, but I think the idea that having loads of rich black people is going to help and solve black people's problems globally is just, just materially doesn't make any sense, does it? Do you believe we're just perpetuating the very same system under a different slave master? Look, I think, I think there are different means of acquiring wealth. So if you compare someone like Beyonce and someone like Jeff Bezos, one has made, Jeff Bezos has made his money through just pure extraction of, of, of wealth and labor and poor working conditions. I think we have to separate that from, from people like Usain Bolt and people like Beyonce who, who've made their money through genuine talent and ability. But do, so, you, oh. 
But Go remember, ahead. once upon a time ago, Beyonce's line was accused of um, using workers from sweatshops. So oh, well, that's, I didn't know that. She was also exploiting the very same brown and black people that she wanted to save. So I think it's sometimes they're logically inconsistent. But as we both agree, capitalism exploits, the, the, exploits people of the darker land. So it's a juggling. It's a juggling. It's a very right? difficult balance. But I think, I think, yeah, the idea that having those rich black people is not going to save us. Mm. I think just look at, look at white people or look at, I mean, you have America, which is a majority white country. You have loads of really poor white people who are exploited. And so this idea that we can foster racial solidarity through the acquisition of massive amounts of wealth is just plainly wrong. Okay. Atian, who are your role models and why are they your role models? Um, who are my role models? I think one really massive role model I have is Akala. I think he's brilliant. The way that he's raised people's consciousness is, is really profound. There's people like John Coltrane, who's contributed massively to music. Kendrick Lamar, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Kwame Nkrumah. I think there are many, many people who are massively inspirational. If there's one person that you look up to and you try to embody their work, who would that person be? I think one person that you have massively been admiring recently is Kendrick Lamar. I think his ability, he, not only his artistic genius, but the way that he communicates these messages to millions of people, I think is really quite profound. And his honesty and the way that he speaks from his perspective without compromising is something which is really, I, that everyone can learn from. And I think there's a lot of, another person is Stormzy, who's, who's also brilliant. Interestingly, because Kendrick Lamar, in the remix of Mask Off, he says, how did you let a commercial, uh, so on, how did you let a commercial, how did you let a rapper go commercial? How did you let a commercial Yeah, yeah, rapper... like how, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I thought that was very interesting because he's played on the very same systems that disempower people, but he's also spread a genius amount of awareness. Now, when we think of Stormzy, we have murky books. He said over the next five years, he's going to be promoting, I believe it was 10 million to black-led yeah. causes. He does a lot of work with a boxing club I used to box at called Carney's Community. I think Stormzy is a very much down-to-earth individual. I, when I think of um, people in comparison, like Akala, who's done raising consciousness, um, raising the public's consciousness for so many years, I don't believe he gets the credit that he simply deserves no, he sometimes. I've listened to that man for years. And before, it became, before black politics became popular, he was there. How can we bring black politics from the underground into the mainstream when this whole idea of Black Lives Matter dies down again? I think it's about constantly keeping the energy up. Because I think these, even if the media coverage goes away and everyone goes back to watching Premier League football games and getting on with their life, which I think will happen, we still have to consciously and consistently and with... with as much effort as, as we can, drive forward and really engage these people, people around these issues. Because I think knowledge isn't there to be consumed. It, knowledge isn't there to be hoarded and, and kept to yourself. I think knowledge is about enlightening and, and, and giving other people the tools they need to, to move in this world to help improve it. And I think it's just simply about telling people about people like Akala, recommending his book, I mean, there's loads of different, I think we need to embrace the idea of constant education because I think school has taught us that education starts when we're whatever age we go to school and, and ends when we, when we go to university or after we graduate university. But actually, education has to be something which is constant and consistent and really it's, a, it's the key towards navigating and, and improving the world. Because interestingly, I saw a quote that said, a child only, ed a child only educated at school is actually an, an uneducated child, simply because we know that the education system doesn't teach us and prepare us for the realities of life. In fact, sometimes it leaves us more fragile, doesn't get us ready for anything. It gets us ready for the world of work. So Atian, I want to ask you, what keeps that fire in your belly going to continue the activism that you do? And why I ask that question is because before Black Lives Matter was around, before the death of George Floyd, I mean this in the kindest way possible. 
we had part-time black people, we had part-time black allies. How do we allow people to become full-time black allies and full-time black when simply being black in itself can be traumatic? As you said, the desensitization and the normalization of death is all around us. How do we keep that same energy up? How do you keep that fire in your belly going? Look, I think we have to constantly be aware that the injustices, just because we don't see an injustice doesn't mean it's not happening. And so even when the cameras go away and everything dies down, we still have these same problems to deal with. But I think... I think activism is difficult, but it's, it's a necessary way of pushing society forward. And I think even when everyone moves on, or if everyone does move on, I think the work that's being done inside the community to provide people with material needs, to support people, will still carry on. And, and still, there have been people who've been running organisations for decades who will still be there when everything moves on. And I think we need to stand up and stand in solidarity and support those people, groups and organisations. So how do you feel about the future? Do you believe the future is one that you look forward to or is it one that you remain doubtful for? Look, I think it's a difficult balance between being hopeful and being optimistic and realistic about the challenges which are ahead. And I think this period of crisis has opened up everyone's eyes, even if you weren't paying attention before, to various different forms of injustice. I think, can we go back to normal when this is all over, when this pandemic is over, when the Black Lives Matter movement dies down? I don't think we can. I think too much information has been put out. Too many inequalities have been exposed. Too many people have been engaged and politicised. I think, generally, I think we sit at the crossroads of history. What comes next mm. and what the coming decades look like is very much reflective of the politics that we embody now, the decisions that we make now, what we do day to day. So I think too often we're made to feel like we cannot shape the future. But actually, there's more of us. We're stronger, we're more engaged. The power of people and communities can never be doubted and underestimated. Look at how much... I think history is generally perceived as being bad and all the things that happened in the past. But I think you have to ask yourself, at every single moment when the most injustice, when humans are at their cruelest. We have to look at the people who sacrificed and stood up and fought for what could be done. And I think as the climate crisis looms, as we continue the struggle around systemic racism and, and police brutality, as, as we have an economy which is broken and, and leads to massive levels of inequality, we still have to ask ourselves, it's our moral responsibility to stand with each other and to challenge injustice. I mean, there's a brilliant Angela Davis quote. Um, I think she says, I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I'm changing the things I cannot accept. So every structure that we have in society, every problem is the result of decisions and action. And we can decide and we can, we can act our way out of these injustices. Okay. Um, to anyone, we've got like a final seven minutes left. So throw in your questions. Um, Axel, I've got to ask you a question. What is your background um, in, in terms of country and just how much has your culture influenced you being the person that you are now? So uh, my parents are from South Sudan. And I think there's, there's something about that and about the instability of, of moving to a different country and operating in a culture which is different from where your parents came from that fosters an adaptability and a desire to, to almost shake things up and to do things differently, which I think is reflected in, 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 in the stuff that I do. Okay. And how do your parents feel about you being so heavily involved in activism? Do they have a sense of fear? Um, I think I've done it for long enough that, that any kind of sense of, of fear isn't there anymore. And I think you have to... I think there's a certain clarity of youth that you, you feel like what comes next and, and the world that you want to live in and the world that you see is so massively distant and separated from the world in which you think we should have. And I think that clarity of youth is what drives forward a lot of the activism, which I think is done by 
but people of my age and, and generation. Okay. Atiyah, we got some questions. Let's go for... Ooh, this is, this is a good question. Um, let me see if this whole thing comes up. Do you not think Morgan Freeman and Candace Owens are sadly representatives of a proportion of black people who are actually hurting the movement rather than... It cut out there, but I presume... Look, I think people like Candace Owens are kind of... Either they're really ignorant or they're kind of like opportunists who basically um, feel like there's almost a niche to be carved out there by... Like, I think Candace Owens put, put out a video where she tried to... She basically tried to say that no one should care about George Floyd because of his criminal record. I mean, anyone who takes that seriously, I think we just shouldn't engage with that kind of thing. Because no one, it doesn't represent any kind of current of thought. There are very few people, very few black people believe that. And I think these people are often, their careers and their, their ways of thinking and their, their actions are driven upon people engaging it in a way of, of outrage. And I think she's probably just an opportunist. Interesting. Because I think, strange enough, Candice Owen cares about the black community. But I don't think I do. Do you know what it is? Why I say that is because I try not to get triggered by the things she says. I don't agree with everything she says, but I think in her, in a strange way, she cares. And I think sometimes because it's not the way that we understand it, she gets alienated even more rather than being part of the solution. But that's just my opinion. I don't agree with a lot of the things that she says. So I'm, I'm going to put that yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely no, but don't I think, agree. I think the point about Candace Owens is that she presents... I think, firstly, her ideas are wrong. But she also presents it in the most triggering Absolutely. and enraging way possible to the point where I think even if you do believe in individualism and you genuinely thought that that was our way out of the problems we face, you wouldn't present it if you wanted people to supposedly learn about your ideology or take things from what you're saying you wouldn't present in a way which is just plainly there to offend people and tap into deep injustices in a way that's just triggering mm. okay let's go for one more question oh this is a very good question how do you cope emotionally being an activist um i think i'm just a pretty resilient person i think that's just i think that's the answer but how but let me let me expand. How have you fostered that resilience? Because not everyone has that resilience, Etienne. I feel like you've eaten too much humble pie. I want to know how have you done that? Um, I think a lot of it is a recognition that that I think everyone has a part to play, and perhaps this is my part. <laughs> you just have to. You have to roll with the punches of, of, of whatever part you've fallen into or you've walked into or you play in, in the sort of ecosystem of, of what's happening and the progress we're trying to fight for. So perhaps would you say you see it as your purpose, your destiny? Um, yeah, yeah, you could call it like that. Okay, let's go for one more. We've got one more minute left. Let's go for this one. If you could sum up the next three steps, the three next steps towards change regarding systematic racism, what would they be? I think oh, the sure. first... We've only got a minute left. All right, cool. Okay, I think the first one would be to carry on doing the brilliant work which is being done around sort of providing people with practical support and education and food and all these various different things. The second one is addressing the root causes of, of injustice around policing, about education, around the way the economy works more generally. And what's the third one? The third one is just never giving up. You just keep on pushing until it is whatever. Systemic, yeah, systemic, yeah, systemic. Atian, listen, you're an inspirational... Thank you for having me. ...young man. You're only 17, and I genuinely wish I could be like you. I'm looking up to you, <laughs> Thank you, know? you. thank you, thank you. I'm going to be calling you up. I'm going to be texting you. <laughs> I've been asking for your advice. I thank you, I appreciate that. more young people like yourself, the world, the future is bright. The future is hopeful. And I believe just as rich as you are in melanin, you're rich in thought process and you're rich in heart. We need more critical thinkers like yourself. Atien, I'm going to ask you, we've got to have you on for a part two at some point. Definitely. 
Because I'll tell you about my plan to become prime minister. Listen, and when you're going to be prime minister, I hope you bring me up to the doorstep when you just definitely hundred percent. Hundred percent. Thank you for having me. You are so inspirational, and I genuinely, genuinely mean that. This has been one of my most favorite lives. You've engaged beautifully, and I believe the people that have watched this have thoroughly enjoyed. And I think I speak on their behalf, Etienne. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Listen, this. we're kind gonna do. Words. We're gonna be doing so much. Definitely, let's do that part two. Yeah. Definitely. Have a lovely night, and thank you for everybody for locking in and comment, share, and like. Etienne, we'll talk soon. Definitely, definitely. See you there, Take right? care. Bye. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and I look forward to having you again. If you've enjoyed, share, subscribe, follow, and make sure everybody gets to have the blessing that is conversations. And remember, Flower Hour is the podcast where conversations blossom.